You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh and proudly sponsored by LFG Australia. Welcome to The Dice Men Cometh, which is Australia's and the Southern Hemisphere's leading board game tabletop show. We're talking board games, card games, dice games, anything you can do on, around, near, over or under a table. Joining me this week, as always, is someone who I spend a lot of time around a table with, Leon. Hello again, how are you? I am very well, sir. How are you in this lovely Tasmanian winter? Well, I am very well, except I did discover a serious, well, not so serious, but a leak in the games room. So I've got to get that fixed. Thankfully, it was nowhere near the shelf. So the board games themselves are dry. However, yeah, I don't want to have a leak in my games room for too long. The moisture, the mould, it's not going to be good. So well, I do know some of the games you have in your collection and it wouldn't hurt if they got a bit water damage oh. thrown out. But that's, but that's beside the point. We're allowed to have um, different opinions or in other words, some people are allowed to be wrong. Um, <laughs> but we're not going to be talking about bad games this evening because we don't do that because that's somebody else's job. We talk about all the positive, happy times and we're going to be doing that with our special guest, aren't we? Well, we are. Funny that you're talking about not talking about bad games we're actually going to be talking about oh, good yeah. games oh yeah i was trying i was attempting to avoid it because it's the obvious and I-, I know we're all about the obvious but i thought for once we could avoid it after 313 episodes but no yes no we're going to talk about good games and everything good games absolutely and to join us on the endeavor to talk everything good games is do we call you still the director of good games publishing mr kim brayback I think that is still my title, yes. Yeah, well, (laughs) welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 313. How is life treating you or ISO life treating you, Kim? Oh, it's going well. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, nice one, Leon. You walked straight into that one. There was no avoiding that. that, (laughs) I tend to, yes. We set that that up years ago. Um, Yeah, look, ISO gaming, it's weird, isn't it? Um, I've kind of moved mostly online, like I imagine you guys might have and various people listening probably have. I still get to game with my family and occasionally friends that come over, but the sort of regular gaming group that I have is all shifted online into Tabletop, to- tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia um, and, and a few other ones, yeah. So yeah. it's continuing. In some ways, I think I'm playing more games than ever. <laughs> Well, when you haven't got any, you know, set up and breakdown to contend yes. with, it, it takes a huge amount of time and makes it more available for actual gaming. Now, before we get into that, Leon's got a question and then I'm no, going to start I, an official interview. I just wanted to quickly throw in here something that's probably interesting to nobody but myself. But yes, I, I do. I must admit, I had some friends around the other night and we set up a game, not from Good Games Publishing. It was It was something different and I won't mention what it was. And we set it up. And we read the rules a little bit after watching a video on how to play it and just kind of went, I can't be bothered after this annoying setup. And then we didn't play the game and I'm probably never going to play that game. So yes, online is good for that as well. It does help. Um, when the game's all ready to go, you press a button, you take your seat and then you're off and running. That, that can be good. Yes, I've that only done so that good. three or four times in my entire gaming career. But yes, it, it is a thing that can happen. So people should learn to make their setup good because it can ruin a good game. Not good games. It could ruin a good... I'm going to stop talking now. This is ridiculous. Back <laughs> to my whiskey. You too, chat. All right. Wonderful. Well, I will start with the question that is most importantly on everyone's lips, and that is, what is a Kim Brayback and why should people listen to you? <laughs> I, well, where to start? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to come back for that. Um, look, I, I designed a game a few years ago. I got into publishing because there weren't really any Australian publishers and there seemed to be 
um, with the combination of Kickstarter for the first time ever, it seemed to be viable to start up a publishing company for Australian games. So that's kind of the vision. Um, with, there was a few more sh layers to the vision as well. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's really what I wanted to try and do and, and shift out of my um, former work life to making board games. Um, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't really obsessed by designing games, although I have designed one and I, I still have a burning away in the back of my mind. But um, uh, it was more about um, just trying to find the best games that we were making here and bring them to the world. That was That's really the big vision. Excellent. So look, yes, you are, as you say, the director of Good Games Publishing. Now, when did Good Games Publishing actually start to be? When did you, you push that button and make it happen? I think uh, in 2016, I started working on my own game and, and we, I, I kind of knew some of the guys uh, who run Good Games and the distribution company at that time um, in Australia. And, and for people who don't know, obviously not many of them in your Australian audience, but, <laughs> you know, Good Games is a, is a chain of stores, um, 34, I think now globally. So they're mostly in Australia and then a couple in the US as well. So um, the stores have... Um, had a strong focus on community play. Um, initially, that probably was very focused on collectible card games and that kind of stuff, but it's certainly broadened out to be role-playing games, tabletop games, all sorts of games in, in most of the stores that are run around the country. So um, we've always had that kind of vision that we'd like our games to be able to be played in a store and that kind of thing. Um, so I think it was just a natural evolution for the guys at Good Games to go, you know, we've done retail stores, we've done distribution because we needed to get more games into Australia, but we're not making the games. And here's this guy, Kim, that we know from back in the, <laughs> back in the day playing Magic the Gathering and that kind of stuff. And he's made a game and let's try Kickstarter out and see how that works. And, and we tried and if, Monster. And if you've bought all their Magic cards from Good Games, you've invested enough in the company to, to try and get something back, surely. <laughs> yes. Well, I had to sell my, sell my Magic collection. Yeah. <laughs> to, to get up the startup funding. Now, um, yeah, so so really, it was just let's let's see if Kickstarter can make the difference, and that's really been the driving force, I think, behind not only us but the other sort of publishers in Australia as well. Is yeah. without Kickstarter, I don't think it'd be possible. It's just such a great vehicle for reaching a, a global audience and overcoming some of the challenges we have bringing games to the global market from from here. Yeah, definitely. Now we'll get to the Kickstarter and we'll get to your your games because I've I've written down and I I have a sneaking suspicion I've almost played every single game that Good Games Publishing has produced and and released. But tell me about Little Kim. What was what was Little Kim like and and when did you start playing games in you know any way, shape, or form? Oh, total geek. You know, I my first memories of gaming outside of stuff like Uno and stuff like that were. I think my, my dad's German and he brought the Ravensburger game to the table one day. I don't think he had like a, a schooling in German game design, but anyway, he just gravitated to buying a German game and it was some kind of pick up and deliver um, ticket to ride style thing, but way, way before that. And I was probably like eight years old. We're talking like over four decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a long time ago. Just like, I loved that so much, but, in, I've thought about it often about what I loved so much about that. And in, in and it's a bit of a guiding light for what we want to try and achieve in publishing. And that is that it brought our family together in some times that were pretty sometimes tumultuous and, but the time where we could forget about that and just play together and have fun together. And it did bring us together. And I'm sure I loved it more than anybody else in the family. And that 
I'd often beg them to play and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let's play again. And we probably only played that game like three or four times, although in my mind it's like a dozen times. But after that, I gave up playing board games and, and I went on to discovering Dungeons and Dragons when it first came out and then Warhammer and then eventually board games with a few other friends that I'd done role-playing games with, but we then sort of segued into early board games like Cosmic Encounter and... Good choice. Um, yeah. Um, a, a, um, Advanced Civilization. You guys yeah. ever play those ones? No, I haven't actually. Oh, giant table filling games. They take precisely six and a half hours. Epic, epic um, <laughs> ancient civilization type of games where you just got to deal with all sorts of cataclysms that happen in your civilization and rebuild it and that kind of stuff. So the scope of the kind of games I started getting interested in it was much bigger. And around that time as well, I discovered magic because it arrived and then I went deep down that goddamn rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> and and became quite obsessed with it. And I, I think I was pretty good at it for a while. I was a good good player in, in Australian rankings and was part of the Australian team to one of the world right. championships and all that kind of stuff. So I took it seriously, but everything else just went to the wayside, right? Like mm, That's that's what magic does to you, right? Eh? Yeah, it's a lifestyle game, which is great. I had a, gr- a lot of great times there and I met a lot of really good friends and I met some of the guys from Good Games. Um, doing that because they were doing the same thing before they started up good games. So yeah, look from there on in, it was just, um, once I got out of magic, me and my buddies just started playing a lot more board games and our weekly role-playing session transitioned into board games because they were just so much more manageable. You get one or two games in in a night. Um, nobody has to do any homework apart from reading the rules of your new game, but it's your new game. So yep. Easy enough. Yeah. <laughs> and so board games just became this thing. And I'd, I'd always enjoyed board games, but I came back to it big time. And then, yeah. Fantastic. Then we, we discovered Kickstarter and the, the little itch about trying to make your own game. Now, are we, and... are we talking about Monstrous, Kim? Is this, is this yeah, your starting yeah. little you know, no. foray into board game design? The first thing I attempted to design, like uh, many other game designers before me, was a gladiatorial skirmish game okay. <laughs> full of like chaining, stacking combos. And then the second one was a kingdom building deck builder. So it's like a tableau deck building game. Because yep. I found like when I first played Dominion, I was like, this is awesome. The engine's awesome, but I come from Magic the Gathering and I want to interact with my, uh, my friends yep. at the table in those very special ways. Yep. So I started making something much more interactive and tableau building and stuff like that. I, um, I think probably wisely put that aside and then thought, look, I'm going to try Kickstarter. I'm going to try something small and manageable on Kickstarter and just work it out. And mm-hmm. that's, why, that's why I did Monstrous. Yeah, and look, I think, you know, Monstrous, I certainly backed it. I think Leon may have backed it as well. Did indeed. Um, I've still got a copy kicking around here somewhere that we do take out off the shelf from time to time because it's such an, it was such an interesting premise. There's not many dexterity games kind of like it. And that's why I, I haven't got rid of it. It stayed up on the shelf just because it is, I think, such a unique game still to this day. You, you must have some really great memories of creating this because it's a, it's a fun game to play and watch played. Oh, thanks for saying that. I, I do. And it's, it's really interesting because we wanted to make, like very, very early on, I realized there's m- many different types of games for many different types of people. And Every game have, has its audience. But a lot of people, I think, forget that and they go, that's a game I don't like, therefore it's a bad game. No, there are games for particular situations where you do want to have some sort of ridiculous fun or, or you do want to do something that's completely like any other game. And so I know Monstrous isn't going to set the world on fire and, and it didn't. You know, we sold five or 6,000 copies and, and it's done. And that's fine because yep. 
you know, some people came up to us at conventions and said, I absolutely love this game. There's nothing <laughs> like it. And I've had a lot of fun with it. And it's just for what it is, it's it's the perfect kind of little game. And I, I tried to make it as thematic as possible. You're a, you're a cranky Greek god. You're throwing monsters down. You're pulling off combos that are kind of like Magic the Gathering style combos, yeah, if you are. notice, right? You know, mm. So trying to chain little effects. And I had to try and rein that in and keep it simple because <laughs> <laughs> you're chucking cards. I got so good at that game, I had to play with my left hand. And then, there we go. And then if I was losing the game, I'd go, okay, I'm allowed to change my right hand now. <laughs> and if I, if, I, if I start winning again, I have to go back to my left hand. Well, there's um, an inbuilt expansion right there if you need yeah. it. Yeah. No, it's, look, it was, a really, it was a really cool game. It, it also, from memory, had a really modest funding goal, which is something that we talk about on the show really a lot for Australian you know, designers wanting to get their, their first Kickstarter success under the belt because we've just seen so many times... Designers are ambitious, which is great. But from a funding point of view, you need to get runs on the board. You need to grow your, your market, your audience. Yeah. And the best way to do that is, is give them good value for money. Um, you start with that small-ish game and then work up to the, the next size and the big box after that, don't you reckon? Yeah, well, that was um, that a big part of the goal is to just pick a price point that was low risk. Yeah. And then um, we tried a, new, a relatively new method at that time, which I'd been a part of um, researching. So you, you'll remember the dark ages of, of Kickstarter where everything cost as much in shipping to get it here <laughs> as the game itself, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's kind of reduced in many cases, not all cases, but the thing we worked out there is that you could use these um, Chinese fulfillment companies to send games globally um, for a very, very modest price if the game was under a certain weight. So we wanted to try that method out and just see if we could open up a much more international audience. And that really, really worked. You know, only 50% of our backers were in the States and the rest were outside the States yeah, well. because the shipping was free <laughs> to everyone <laughs> bundled into the price. So there are a lot of things we were trying out there that have become a bit of a hallmark the way we do things. Yeah, it's it's very good. I like the way you're thinking. Now let's move on to these good games, published games. And, and please let me know what I've missed. So in no particular order, we've got Monstrous, which that was published under the Good Games Publishing. We've got yep. Unfair plus all expansions and... Who knows? There might be more coming out. I guess you'll tell us that. We've got Fairy Season. We've got Fluttering Souls and Guildmaster. That's right. Have I missed any released games? Nope. That's everything for now. In that case, I have definitely 100% played every single game that Good Games Publishing has released. Surely that gives me like a golden ticket to something? Uh, yeah, we'll get you a golden ticket. That's fine. Hey, excellent. <laughs> so look, I mean... Obviously, we've got a couple of small games in there and we've got a couple of larger ones. So with, with Monstrous, obviously, the light, flicky nature yeah. of, of Warfare, we've got Fluttering Souls, which is kind of draws inspiration, I guess, from Seven Wonders Duel. You're, you're competing over butterflies, I guess, in a little two-player uh, card game. Fairy Season is a really cute little game with fantastic art that doesn't take too long. And yeah. then we've got these bigger games. Unfair was, was arguably, you know, the, the one that really set Good Games Publishing uh, awake on a global scene? Because that that was a pretty good success, hey? Oh, yeah. It's, um, and it continues to be. like uh, it. I think we've probably sold 17,000, 18,000 copies of that internationally, which is, is good numbers. And it's yeah. sold very, very well in Australia. Um, and the expansion sold really well as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've got over 5,000 backers on the, on the Kickstarter for the expansion. So it's already above, it's already, the expansion content's already performing above what normal expansions do for a regular game. Great. I think part of that is because of the, the fan base of unfair understanding how modular it is and that, well, it's just how you combine the decks that's the fun. So why not have all the things? 
Um, so it's 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 done really well. And look, you know, it's it's a, a really really interesting game system. And we've the most amazing thing about Unfair is we get some of the fan base of Unfair have played it. And I found out the other day somebody's played it over three hundred times and logged their plays. And I'm just like, you know brain explosion how can how can you still be enjoying the game <laughs> after 300 plays and so and they're not an isolated case we have many people and, and often couples who've played the game over 100 times and that's a lot by any measure in, in this day you guys would know you you're lucky to get a game to the table five times and you're hoping it'll it'll be 10 but it's pretty rare. Like, how many games can you list that you've played ten times in the last Absolutely. couple of years? Yeah, yeah. not many at None? all. Leon, did you have a question, mate? <laughs> yeah, well, I was just going to say the thing with unfair that, um, especially in Australia, that the word of mouth got around is because at every convention that we have been to, there was always Joel there, the designer of the game, um, testing out new expansions and playing it with people. And I think I don't think I've ever seen him for more than 20 minutes without seeing unfair in front of him, <laughs> which is weird considering the amount of times I've met him over the years. But everyone's always seemed to enjoy it, and he seemed always happy to talk to people about the expansions and ideas for an expansions. So just that alone, I know Australia is a bit more of a smaller population to be able to do that. But the word of mouth from that got it out there amongst Australians, which I think yeah. think helped. If you guys were in the states and did the same thing, it would have been a an absolute roaring success. It's just you know the southern hemisphere; it is what it is. But from what you guys had, the opportunities you had in front of you, you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, I mean, Joel's done a fantastic job. It's been a, a labor of love for him for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. So when I first saw the game, it was already, I think, maybe 11 iterations old. Wow. And when I look back at the stuff he'd done before I was there, I mean, it was, obviously we made some changes, but there was a lot done before that. So he'd done a, a fantastic amount. And, and it is true when he's at conventions. Remember conventions? I remember conventions. <laughs> um, when he's at conventions, he, he, he loves to put the thing, the new secret things in front of people and just see what the reactions are. And Yeah, and oh, he's a machine. I've, I've yeah. seen him at work at numerous conventions and he just does not stop. I, I will never forget sitting down at the, at the booth, the Good Games booth in PAX several years ago and, and having a, a shortened version of Unfair and just being totally destroyed in the last third of the game and walking away with virtually nothing and going, I hate this game, but I love this game because it's so mean. It was <laughs> such a memorable experience. And, yeah. and obviously, you know, you've had, uh, had people who have loved that and people who've not so much loved the, the second half meanness of it. But yeah. for me, it's, it's a really bang on experience and, and yeah, we've certainly played good. it plenty of times since. Cool. I mean, and that's the thing that I think if we learn something from Unfair, it's that um, that first one or two games is really, really critical to give people a kind of, I wouldn't say a soft landing, but a, a landing that everything seems right and in, in proportion. So, you know, we could have softened some of the stuff or forced people to play a particular version of Unfair because it's modular. Yeah. If you want to, you can dive in and play vampire, ninja, gangster straight away, and you'll have a pretty rough time if people <laughs> want to play rough and tumble because you can. I own a copy of the game and you just sold me again. What you just, oh, that's right. <laughs> vampire ninja gangster I, I really should play that again <laughs> <laughs> that's right so some people are going to thrive on that sort of cut and thrust but mm. what you find is that over like the first five to ten games when people play they start to realize look i can attack because this card says i can but to do so i'm giving away the, the unstoppable opportunity costed top half of a card so yeah. they start to realize well when i once i combo those top things that's more powerful than any series of attacks 
generally. It's only when you've got uh, somebody who clearly seems to be enjoying their engine a little bit too much and you need to sort of mess with them a little bit. That's the, they're the times that it really makes the most sense to try and um, pull somebody back with the cards that can mess with you and hope they don't have blocking cards and all that kind of stuff. So we do find that after maybe three to six games, people have started to work that out and you tend to find the amount of um, destruction and broken noses slides <laughs> a little bit in the game and, and people are then playing this giant combo game, which is of course what Unfair really is because yeah. you can assemble those events that you might otherwise attack with each other. You can assemble those into ridiculous combos and suddenly instead of getting 12 money in a turn, get 60 or some crazy free building kind of stuff. So they're, they're the joys to be found. And I think that's the secret to why people can play it a hundred times because they're comboing these cards, not necessarily just going for each other's jugulars and exploring the ridiculous um, combinational nature of unfair. So I think that's why people who love it, love it. That's, that's fantastic. That's exactly what you want in a fan base. So look, let's talk about how you're finding these games. So, you know, where are you finding these designers who are so far have given you game after game after game that have, that have all funded, that have all found their successes in, in the, the tabletop world? Well, I'm, I'm part of the TGDA, Tabletop Game Designers of Australia Facebook group. Um, so I tend to see a lot of bubbling up on there. And, um, you know, if something's of interest to us, we'll, we'll sort of reach out to people. So I think that might be how I found unfair. Certainly why Souls was seeing some of uh, Joel Lewis's yeah, beautiful butterfly Joel. art. That's right. Yeah. We, we only hire designers called Joel. Chris's middle <laughs> name is Joel. So, um, um yeah, so I keep an eye out there, but obviously I try and go to the major conventions, which is PAX Australia, CanCon. Um, I haven't made it to BorderCon yet because it's always a little bit of a tricky time for me just before Gen Con and stuff like that. So, yep. uh, yeah, so I just try and make it to, to, to the bigger conventions where I expect most people will be. And there's um, Looking for Gamers in yeah, the LFG. Sydney, yeah, LFG as well. So, yeah, so... It's really just a mixture of seeing what's out there. Obviously, we get submissions from people as well. And so we, we like to sort of take a look there. Some people have like pitched us via a video of their game. And then we've decided to sort of follow that up and, and meet with them in person and actually play the game. That kind of thing. I've met with people in some of our stores in Sydney. It's okay. Just run me through the game and, cool. you know. So well, I think Leon's got a, a pitch for you about a, a wallpaper game that we've designed. Is that right, Leon? Uh, well, we have done that, but we're still talking about that, Garth. We're not at oh, pitch okay. stage yet. No, I just wanted to quickly mention that um, I think it was PAX. It must have been last year, which is crazy to think that I was in a room with 10,000 other people. And it had just you guys had just released Fluttering Souls, I believe. Yep. Because and Fairy Season, yeah, that, that was last year, yep. Because that was, yeah, because I remember that convention um, where... Obviously, as always, lots of people playing games, lots of people talking about new games and whatnot. And Fluttering Souls was one of the most played, most talked about games that entire weekend, which must have been an amazing thing for you guys to see. Just kind of, not necessarily out of the blue. I mean, it always looked kind of interesting, but with all the new stuff coming out as it happens around that time of year, to see that go so well was amazing. Well, it has gone really well. And look, one of the great things about Fluttering Souls is it's you can teach it in about 60 to 120 seconds. And I'm not yeah. exaggerating. It's not very simple to understand, but there's a lot of emergent complexity. Well, not a ton, but there's more. Uh, I guess the thing we like to say is surprising depth. There's more than, than you might expect. Um, some people 
have said, oh, it plays itself out. And I go, okay, let's sit down and play and I'll, I'll, I'll beat you nine times out of 10. Is that playing <laughs> itself out? Like you can build skills in that game and you can sort of read the game play and try and work out the steps ahead and that kind of stuff. So it, it was, it's a lovely, beautiful little game. It's, it's one of those kind of games that any omnivorous gamer should probably give it a go. They get, even if it's not going to be their favorite game, they'll get to play it with somebody in their circle and it'll be the right game for the right time. Yeah, yeah I play it with my kids. I have yeah. a copy right there. So, yeah, the, my kids love it because it is simple for both of them to play with each other. They're nine and 12 years old, respectively. Yeah, great. I'm just there answering a question if they need it. But so far, explain it to them again in a minute or two and, and away they go. It's also, I've found a great stepping stone for then going on to Seven Wonders Duel with my 12-year-old. My and I've been able to use those, you know, the mechanics he's learned from that to go up to something that's... that's yeah, a little bit more complicated. And it is interesting. I mean, some sometimes people say it's kind of feels a bit like Seven Wonders Jewel with Sushi Go. Yeah. If you can imagine those two things genetically spliced. And I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, and I think the advantage that you get out of that, if if like two player games, they're often a, a parent and child or, or two uh, a couple playing. And, you know, when you get that kind of scenario, you're not dealing with, heavy heavy duty gamers right no so i think as much as i love some seven wonders duel i think as a two-player game introduce people into modern gaming i'm not sure if it's the perfect game for that because there's a lot of beautiful detail in that game that i don't think you'd be wanting to throw at somebody who wasn't ready for <laughs> it right not yet i mean there's a lot of people that to regular seven wonders and i can understand why because and the reason is it's the control you exercise through your choices over Correct. what the other player can take that simple of interaction that isn't me hitting them or doing anything it's just controlling their choice range is beautiful and and fluttering soul it does with, with less fewer moving parts and that spice of the great egg fly that you can put in there as a blocking move and that kind of <laughs> stuff so it's got Simpler stuff, but also something that's even more interactive in, in the blocking. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, is your job living the dream, just playing playing games for a living, or is there actual work that you need to do? It's a lot of horrible work. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if you understand global logistics. Nightmare. Not anymore. Especially when there's virus. And I don't know, it was weird. Like we get the strangest things happen. Like, oh, the Suez Canal, there's a drought around there. And so now only you know, the, the, the number of boats that can go through it every day is reduced by two thirds. Yeah. Uh, so there'll be a week delay here and a week delay there. And then, yeah, I mean, one of our shipments to the, to the U S this is extraordinarily boring, but it gives you an idea of what I've got to yeah. deal with. It got caught in customs twice. Oh no. Our shipping partners never heard of that ever happening. They're like, well, we'll, we'll inspect it in the port yep. and we'll inspect it <laughs> on the land as well. <laughs> like, yeehaw. Um, but yeah. There's, yeah. there's work to be done. And, and marketing games is a real challenge these days because, as you guys know, there's so many games out there and finding ways to get cut through is something that we're working on improving. Well, I wanted to talk to you about that because obviously, you know, the nature of gaming and, and working in the industry is that you can... Living on the wrong side of the hemisphere doesn't really matter too much. As long as you've got an internet connection, you can kind of communicate with anyone. But how is good games publishing adapting to, you know, maybe Kickstarter being right for one product and not necessarily right for, for all of them? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what we do is we, we look at each game and, and kind of consider whether it's right for Kickstarter or not. So, for example, we did originally plan on doing Fluttering Souls and Fairy Season on Kickstarter 
but we knew that doing that was potentially risky in that the things that tend to go really, really well on Kickstarter um, are other bigger games where you're able to bling them up yeah. and that kind of thing. Now, we had some success earlier with Monstrous and saying, look, we're not going to bling it out. There's no miniatures in here. We're not going to go crazy, but what we can promise you is a beautiful deluxe art game in a box and it'll get sent to you very quickly from China and it'll be in a reasonable price. And you'll get a Kraken. Yes, and you'll get a Kraken. I think we still have to <laughs> yeah. do the Kraken. Um, so we were going to do the same thing. We were considering doing a, 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 those two games together where you could get either one or both of them at a discount. And part of what we had to work out is like, geez, if we do that, um, will that actually sales or will that turn people off because it looks too complicated? We'll have to explain two very different games in the same Kickstarter page. So the real pros and, cron, pros and cons about <laughs> doing that We'd seen a bunch of other projects do batches of games and none of them do particularly well, but I also thought none of them did a great job of pitching their games. So that was the thing we were going to try. And then all this stuff around the Chinese-American tariff wars kicked up and I could have started that campaign and and not known whether suddenly Americans would have to pay 30% extra on on whatever they ordered and i knew that if they did i'd be the one they'd blame for it <laughs> of course they would <laughs> not, not their president and 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 the chinese president i'll have their so, day in november to decide what they think yeah, about yeah. so look we, we just thought about it and we thought you know these games are never going to go completely gangbusters on kickstarter let's just try going straight to retail and, and cut that out because i don't think people can possibly conceptualize how much work running a Kickstarter is. No, and the good thing about these games is they they fit really nicely on a good display on the shelf next to the, the register, don't they? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing where they, they get a, a nice little bit of shelf space, but usually they can be put to the forefront. And I guess, you know, it helps that you've got a retail network connected to the publishing house so that yeah, you know, a, they're in, in prime locations around those 30-odd shops. It certainly helps. But one thing that helps from that is that we... We have good. Well, we we like to hope that we have good retail sensibilities about what does the thing look like, how big is it, how much is in the box, and then how much does it cost, and and how do we pitch it on the back of the box? And I think we do a pretty well. I'd like like to think we do a pretty good job of that. So our games are always kind of a good aggressive price, and they'll contend well against other things in their class. And we that's part of our selection process. Can we make this game? If it's going to be in this game space, how can we match it up against the other games that are already there and the things that a retailer is likely to recommend to somebody. How do we have a chance of competing with those things so that it will sell in retail? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we do the countertop displays for Fluttering Souls and Fairy Season to sort of zhuzh it up a bit and make it look even prettier and catch, <laughs> catch a few more eyeballs. But yeah, Fluttering Souls is sold out in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, we, whatever copies we had in Australia, it's all gone. I'm not going to go into details on the numbers, but they were good. And Excellent. so we're getting a, a second print run. Right. Um, along with some other things. Yeah. So it's been a really good success for us here and it's just globally. So we're pretty optimistic about how that'll go. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, we better put a little cut into this part of the conversation, Kim, because we're going to come back from um, whatever Leon decides to put into the, the ad break and talk about your latest release that has only just been sent out to backers, including Leon. Um, so we're going to talk about Guildmaster. Now, before we do that, we have to obviously thank our sponsor for the show, Looking for Gamers. So I'm sure you can probably get the good games publishing games in the in and around an LFG store. So please go to lfg-aus.com.au for all your board gaming highlights and purchases. And we will be back 
after this something something. This is Richard from Melbourne, and I want to thank Garth and Leon for their time at BorderCon and reminding me exactly why I support the Dice Men Cometh from a different city. Welcome back, everybody. That was most likely myself with some sort of Patreon ad. Please give us all your money. Only if you want to. Only if you want to. No, I'm just joking. Please give us all your money. And we are joined here by our good friend, Kim, from Good Game Publishing. Now, as you mentioned before, Kim, at the moment, the whole world's kind of dealing with a... We want to play games, we want to see our friends, but online is the way to go. And how have Good Games been um, been kind of dealing with that type of situation that's, you know, it's been around for a while and it's been bubbling over, but it's kind of been, now been thrust into the absolute forefront of everybody's mind? Well, it's it's been really fascinating. I mean, in March, the, all the platforms that host games just spiked you know, there were servers crashing left, right, and center. <laughs> um, that was, from from then, a fantastic opportunity. But we'd already been using those kind of platforms for the couple of years preceding, so Tabletopia and Tabletop Simulator. Um, for example, on I think on Tabletopia, I played about 1,000, and I'm not joking, between 1,000 and 1,200 games of Fluttering Souls with Dolores oh. to, to balance it, because you can play a game... We're just smashing it out, testing out all the layouts. So we use that for balance testing, um, not only with him, but with other playtesters as well. Now, same goes with our upcoming game, Guildmaster. That's a much, much bigger game. And um, the designer, Chris, is in Melbourne. Joel Lewis is in uh, Perth, the most remote city in the world. So you know, <laughs> we've had to, and Australia is a big country, and we're not just getting local designers. Uh, there are a few designers whose games I'm working on that are in Sydney that I have the good fortune to be able to see every now and then, but most of our designs are not local. So we've had to use platforms like that. So for us, it was, a, it's, it was more of a pivot to thinking it, about those platforms less as just uh, a way to develop games, but as, okay, how can we look at the whole life cycle of putting our games onto these online platforms and helping transition it through multiple phases. And the first phase is incredibly rough. It's just like, show me a game, let's play it. And yeah, it'll be, and I'm enough of a native on there now that that's fine. Yep. Um, so uh, then we go through that and then it'd be like, we go through the normal development phase of making the game look good. And then, um, and then we start to look at, okay, how can, how can we make the mod or the Tabletopia implementation as close to the real life experience as possible, which is, I can't tell important is but it's incredibly critical that the first time people play your game they're playing more of your game than they are the technology around it yeah exactly you want the tech and tech technology to be secondary to the actual experience surely you do and yeah. look the advantage of everybody um between you know march and now skilling up is that that hump of learning the technology for many many people that over that um maybe not everyone but a lot of people so they're the, the, the sort of global thinking now is that after COVID's done, eventually, however long that takes, the number of players playing online will recede, but the number of players who are able to play online will stay the same and continue to grow. And then the number of people who are going to perhaps try a game before they buy the game online is going to be way higher than it was before. We don't. Nobody knows what it'll be but no. we think that's critical and so what we're looking at is a strategy of just evolving games so that they have a great um, presence online and we're going to try and be platform agnostic unfortunately there's like three new platforms sprung up over gen con <laughs> alone so i don't know we'll see i mean some platforms will probably just never quite get the traction no. they need but yeah so 
basically we're, we're living online now. I've just completed a whole bunch of testing for another upcoming game. And I probably played about 50 games in the last six weeks wow. or watched, watched people playing 50 games. Yep. Um, it's fantastic. It is great, but it must involve several interesting conversations for all publishers, designers is about, how, if possible, you make money off that those platforms? Well, here's because, a curious thing, yeah. Not because oh, 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 I'm I'm assuming that the you know the idea is yes, let's get them playing these electronic versions so they go to their store and buy them or they back them. But that, that's there the is going to be there is going to be those games where they just go, I don't need a physical copy. And for for me, having played now Gloomhaven on Tabletop Simulator, if I didn't own Gloomhaven, I wouldn't feel compelled to. I would mm. go and buy Tabletop Simulator on special when it's half price and play the bejesus out of Gloomhaven online because you do not have that tedious nature of I'm going to lose half an hour plus of setting it up, breaking it down, how will my cards stacked, all of that stuff. It's just taken care of. There's got to be other gamers like me who, who will think uh, that way. There, there will, but you know what? I stopped playing Physical Ascension when the app came out Yep, because it handles the tedium. Uh, and so some games are going to do that better than others. Now, Gloomhaven is a huge table filler and you kind of want to have a dedicated table for it for three months, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't knock it. I mean, it's the number one game of board game geek. A lot of people obviously love it so passionately and have had a lot of fun out of it. I actually don't own it because I just thought I'm not going to be able to fit that into my gaming life. And so yeah. sadly I'll have to pass on that one. Same with seventh continent and, lots of other big campaign games where I knew I just can't get 20, 30, 40 plays out of that. So Correct. the online experience, I am playing an online legacy game at the moment and we're really enjoying the fact that we can just save the game and then start it up the next week. I'm only, only a little bit into it now. And that is an advantage, but you know, straight away, the very first game of that I played, I was like, Oh my God. I was on the other screen looking at where I could buy it. Yeah. Like the, like within 30, 30 minutes of starting to play it, I was like, I need this in my life. I need to own it. That, <laughs> that, that feeling is there. So we're, we're hoping that with the right kind of game, you're going to go, look, I'm playing this, but I know such and such and such and such are going to also want to play this game and I'm going to get it. And I might get more than one copy because I know. And gamers you know, are collectors. A lot of us are collectors and they'll, they'll pick up a game if it's by the right publisher or by the right designer, or yeah. it just feels that niche uh, that I haven't got already sitting on my shelf. So yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's interesting times ahead, I think. And, and COVID might've brought a bit of that to the forefront and, and maybe progressed a lot of publishers online plans, I guess. I, uh, ours were hugely progressed by that. I mean, look, we, there was a, the, obviously with Tabletop Simulator, where the, the people who understand the programming in Tabletop Simulator can put the game in place and do a basic implementation and then script a little bit so that some stuff gets handled automatically. Um, somebody did that fun fair. In fact, multiple different people did it fun fair. One of them stood out as being the most user-friendly and the most convenient. And we actually employed that guy oh, to wow. build a mod for our new unfair variant fun fair. And then, use that in play testing. Now we went on a really particular methodology there. We were like, we don't want to overcook it and oversimplify it. You still have to feel like you're playing the game. I want people picking up the tokens and handing the tokens to each other because psychologically in the game, that's important to measure 
the yeah. feelings of goodness. Oh, somebody gave me money. I saw their hand reach out. There's a fiver in it and they're dropping it in my area. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but we also wanted it to handle things like card shuffling and refilling markets and just the tedious little stuff. And right. people, people love that. And they're really responsive to the balance we got there. So kind of that'll be our methodology going forward. It's just still make it feel like a real board game, but let it handle the really tedious, but they still feel like they're playing. Sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we better move on to the newest game that Good Games Publishing has released. And we are going to talk about Guildmaster. So, Leon, yes. over to you. I guess you get to, you, you've got the rule book. You can, you can tell him and I what Guildmaster is about because he, he's probably not got any idea. No, I don't imagine he's played it at all. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I will do, and this is a little sneak peek at um, how good good games are at their job, is that um, I think they've been listening to the Dice Man Cometh, which is nice of them, because the first couple of pages of this rule book are exactly, as I've championed for years, what a rule book should be, and that they show me how the game is set up, what the game is about, how it works, and within two or three pages, I'm already relatively confident with this rule book and with this game. So kudos for that. So that being said, normally with the little spiel about the theme of a game, I normally collect different things from various places and write a little spiel about it. I didn't bother with that this time because there's a little paragraph in this book that I'm just going to read word for word because you guys have already done the work for me. <laughs> and that's what I like to see. The, more, the less the dice men have to do, I think the happier everybody is at the end of the day. I agree. So as a master of a new adventurer's guild, you complete complete i mean i can't even read one sentence yet it's so well written <laughs> you compete with rival guilds to earn the most fame in a fantasy world of intrigue and rising threats over nine rounds you secretly and simultaneously order teams of adventurers to complete a limited number of objectives on the main board you combine adventurers abilities and skills to complete interesting difficult contracts which gain you gold and fame. You can also recruit more powerful adventurers and hire builders to upgrade your guild to do more orders with your bigger, more successful teams. But resources are limited and the rival guilds plot to get what they need too. Your team may have to conflict or negotiate or even cooperate with rivals to share in the spoils. You may also miss out on some objectives completely. So you'll plan your orders carefully, weigh up the risk and rewards and work with and against your rivals as you can compete to become the most famous guild in the land. Now, Garth, don't that sound like a game? It does sound like a game and a game that I'm particularly good at because I've won the game. So therefore <laughs> it's a good game by good games. Now this game, we're little, look, before we actually talk about how this game works, we'll go into a little bit of the backstory and it's a good man to have here with Kim to tell us the backstory of this. Now this, is a game that was designed by our Chris Anthony, who, Anthony, sorry, Anthony, Anthony um, yep. who we met a few years ago at PAX and actually taught us this game. I think we actually worked it out. It was about four years ago now, which seems like another lifetime ago, and yes. played the original version of Guild Masters, which was, there was obviously some changes have been made, but it was pretty solid back then. And I remember you guys being excited about it. And we were excited about it too, because we played it and we went, these guys haven't actually physically made it. You could argue this is still a prototype and it's, Excellent. So how did it go about um, with you meeting Chris and then just getting the idea of like, right, we're going to run with this and get her on Kickstarter and see how we go? Yeah, it was good. It was at PAX, I think maybe 2017, PAX in Melbourne. And uh, we sat down to play it and straight away I was kind of like intrigued by the scope of it because it fills the table, as you've seen. Yes. Um, you, you, you're secretly planning the orders that you're going to do behind these big screens. And straight away I saw these big screens and I went, what are these... 
ridiculously huge big screens and straight away when i understood the theme of the game i was like oh they're giant guild buildings they're gonna look awesome and then and then i was like "Ooh, i hope this game's good and then three turns into the game i was like this game is good this game is epic Mm. and i wanted to bring that that sort of visual um epic pitch to it so that's that's what we've really been working on all these years is scaling down the gameplay because it was originally like 12 turns long had five orders each turn so it was like whittling down the gameplay to its core uh to to what seemed like a good sort of hour and a half kind of experience to uh and then just blinging up the the visual aspect of the game well either way there's your first expansion done epic guild masters add a few more turns and a few more orders and kind of go from there yeah. <laughs> but um, i do agree with you especially about those player screens and i was thinking about it today and I don't know if Garth can think of anything off the top of his head because he's not that smart a person. But That's true. when it comes to player screens, there's not many I've ever seen better than the ones in this game. Considering the art on the front of them that you're going to be looking at the other players is excellent. And then behind it, it's got so much information, but it's got plenty of pictures as well that tells you you've pretty much got your own little rule book on your player screen behind you, which is much appreciative. There's no wasted space in this design at all. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you think so. I mean, part of the idea there is you're sitting behind your screens and you're immersed in the theme and the thinking about the game at that point because you're secretly planning where your orders are going to go. But mm-hmm. every now and then you might wonder, how does this work or how does that work? Well, you've got your screen right in front of you. So it's it's sort of doubles as, well, what do I do when I don't want to ask any questions? Because if I have to ask a question out loud, now I'm going to give away what I'm actually yep. thinking about. <laughs> so the whole game was designed. You'll notice the the tokens are very large and the font size on the tokens is quite large and we use fairly large icons. So if I want to surreptitiously yeah. look over the table at Garth's first icon that he has, that'll tell me what he's best at when, when I see his guild upgrades yeah. and I'll know that he's best at arcane or might or whatever he's best at. And I won't have to ask, Oh, what, what are you best at? <laughs> <laughs> and then of course you've got the lovely little ribbons that go over the top that show you when you've made all your choices and you're ready to proceed with the game, which were the final stretch goal. I remember vividly when the Kickstarter was out and, Oh, they're a nice little touch. Well, that's that's a curious thing. We always sort of talked about them in a kind of flippant way. And then we got close to, you know, reaching it all out. Well, we got through all our regular goals and we're like, well, what's one final thing we can do to try and get over the line? And, well, maybe we do those crazy ribbons because mm. it's not something you see in a game, but everyone's like, oh, are you done yet? Are you done yet? And these ones are just like, you know, I'm done folding. I can sit back. and I think it, there's, there's a nice little bit of showmanship that goes along with that flipping down the, the yeah. ribbon and just letting everyone know just sit back and I'm just yep. just let me let me have my turn because I'm ready to go but look just to, to answer your question Leon I think as far as player screens go yes they are definitely up there with the best um I've I've been playing a lot of smartphone recently and they've got the the screens as well which are about a third the size yes. and on the inside of those you've got just nothing but times tables and yeah. and while that certainly serves a purpose in smartphone not the most exciting or useful for 90% of the game. Now, while we're talking about times tables, I know there's something that Garth, I'd be amiss if I didn't have you talk about it because it's something you've been going on about it for years. <laughs> what is on the back page of the Guildmaster book, Garth, that you oh, especially love, love so much? I love this. And and look, I was very luckily given a review copy of Guildmaster years and years ago. So my rule book is a whole bunch of <laughs> A4 pages stuck together. But yes, when you had the rolling percentages in the in the rule books, and you know the average roll of a of a d six is three point five, and all of this stuff in the game in the rules, I just loved it. I just love the fact that you've got the table there so that you can see you know 
a little bit of, of what your dice rolls are going to be. Yeah, I mean, maybe to give it that some context so that people know, what, what you're generally doing in Guildmaster is you're sending a small team of two to four adventurers off to do something in the middle of the board. Now, a lot of the time that's going to do a contract and the contract may say you need to roll 15 on a might skill check and your team might have, say, six dice and they're D6s. So you've got to work out, well, is six going to be safe to go for a 15? And you've got to work out the odds. Now, a lot of kind of experienced gamers can, can do that fairly easily, but not everyone is great with numbers. So we just thought we needed to level the playing field for people who weren't and and just put a guide to like what's sort of safe not. Because we also are aware that look, some people are like, oh, dice, randomness. No, 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 I won't have randomness in my game. This, <laughs> this is, Guildmaster is a, uh, a kind of D and D team manager type experience, right? You've got a bunch of adventurers. What do adventurers do in D and D? They go out dice, and there's lots of story around it. But at its core of the system, there's this chance: Am I going to make it? Am I going to not? And as a guild master, you have to manage those resources and go. I really need to do that contract. I need to put more of my team to try and achieve that one, and then I'll take a chance this one, which is worth less, or I've got some trick I can do to try and get that one. And so it's really about you managing resources, which are your adventurers and the probabilities that go with them, which is the number of dice they can roll against certain targets. And that is the game. And if people don't like the fact that they're rolling dice in that, well, that is not the game for them and they should not get it or play it. Because <laughs> it's, it's a core part of the experience is that you're managing your probabilities across the entire game. Yeah, the yes. counter to that is there's a lot of gamers who almost don't care what the game is, just give me fistfuls of dice to roll and I'll yeah. roll them and have a great time. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Which is no bad thing in my eyes. Um, the game also comes with a a quick start guide and in that quick start guide, there's a glossary of all the different terms. Uh, there's some, again, more probability stuff in there. there uh, I talked about the strategy of the games and things you can do. So they're in the quick start. So they're really handy to go, well, I can read this if I want, but you don't necessarily have to, but it's a nice thing to have there. When did it come up with the idea of putting a, um, a quick start in a quick start book in there as well as the, the core rule book? Well, we came up with it um, following on from our approach at big conventions. So for example, Chris, we took Chris over to, to Gen Con mm -hmm. and in the lead up to the Kickstarter and were the challenge was, okay, we've got a booth for whatever Gen Con is four days and we have to, demo the game to as many people as possible to try and get the word out about the game. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? So the solution we came up with was let's program out a first turn as if four capable players started the game already and they're one turn in, they've finished their programming of their adventures, uh, their adventurers ordered for the turn. And then let's sit the players down and we'll make sure that we target most of the key things we need to teach people in that first round. And then we'll go, okay, you're, you're a guild master, you're sitting at the table, you've got a bunch of adventurers programmed into specific order spaces on the board with little cards that tell you what they're gonna do. Now, you've done that all behind your screens, everybody okay, everybody okay? You're all going for this stuff in the middle of the board. Now, lift up your screens, reveal it to all players, and we'll walk you through every one of those orders that happens in the sequence that they do happen in, in the rules. And then by the end of teaching somebody that first loop of the game, we said, okay, now you're on your own, plan your second turn and then you'll understand the game. So we just ease them into it by programming out um, a quick start setup for four players, and then then they're on their own. Now in the quick start guide in this game, you can you could just 
do that and then restart, or you could continue from where you are because we've left everybody in a fairly even position. Um, so that, that was really the idea because it worked so well at the conventions doing that right. method. We just thought, actually, that's a really good way of, of doing that. I don't think I've seen that approach in other games. Like Root has a quick start guide that tells you what to do for the first, I think it's two, two turns of the game, but it didn't tell you, I don't remember it telling you exactly how to set everything up. So we just thought we'd go lock it right down easily walk people through exactly what happens in what order yeah the only yeah. thing i can think of is something like uh labyrinth the coin game that by gmt where the tutorial is maybe you each play two full turns and set up but it's a little bit of a different game to Guildmaster, a two-person uh <laughs> war over franco algerian territories to, uh <laughs> yes. to being rival <laughs> guild masters it is slightly different but also <laughs> the thing with the um the quick start guide is that you can use it however you want because since i'd played this game before when I was uh, setting this game up before people were coming over the other night, I'd used the quick start guide, but I didn't have I didn't have everyone play out that first turn exactly. What I did though is give them the opening um, characters and missions and things just to make it a little bit simpler and a little bit easier. Yep. So I did that first, and then I explained the game to them, which did not take me very long because a these books are really designed quite well, and b um, there's a lovely video with Chris in it from Maple University. And between those two things, we were rocking and rolling pretty quickly. Good one. And I think you could use the, guilt, the, the, the quick start guide like that as well. You could just read it and just go, oh, yeah, yeah. I see how this all works. And then I'll be fine teaching this yeah. if you're the, you're the game's I think, teacher. I think it's one of the games where you play the first round, like you say, Kim, and you've got it. Because mechanically, yeah. each of the components, the, the building, the recruiting, the going out and, and fulfilling contracts, each of themselves is is quite simple. It's just the, what do I do when I'm going to have a fight over who goes first or who That's gets right. the thing yeah. or who completes a contract? And then, you know, what happens when events are out is a little bit more complicated. So I guess, Leon, you better talk us through what we actually do in this game. Well, as um, Kim has said before, the, the way this game works is that you've got your guild, you've got your various different characters and you've got the different jobs on the board that you want to send them out to do. Now, there are various things like recruiting other characters to your guild. They're sending them out to get recruit builders to to build a stronger guild for, for you back home which means in later turns you'll have um, more power to use things like more orders or you can send out a bigger crew as well as sending them out on missions themselves this is where the game where you try and get the most fame possible to to try and win the game so the, as you said you're going to do that by planning behind this screen which gives you plenty of ample room on your board the different orders and the way you're going to do it you put them out there with the different order cards and then everybody lifts up the screen and spends about 30 seconds swearing at each other. Was that always a part <laughs> of the design? Because it, oh, it was yeah. easily easily the best part, I think, of every round, the, 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 the swearing and the creative swearing that came out. Oh, yeah, the big reveal. That's definitely... Yes. That, and that's what all sort of games have is the tension that builds up while you're planning it, trying to guess where your rivals are going to go and what they want to do, trying to think them, outsmart them, or even sponge off them by turning up to the same place they are. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a beautiful mechanic in this game because a lot of people will, especially when it comes to um to plan movement games which i guess this is kind of is kind of isn't but again kind of is uh in that if you find that you've gone somewhere that somebody else has gone before you or they beat you to the punch there or beat you in a conflict there you can still send that group wandering which means you can try and do some of your own little missions as well as trying to get some of your own extra money and fame so you're always going to be doing something which I think is something that in nearly every board game you want. Unless it's a game where you're going for ages and ages and ages, any game like this, you want to be doing something every single turn. So you're yeah. never bored, which is always a lovely thing. 
Well, it is a, it's a hidden sort of, uh, that's a part of the mastery of the game is working out, okay, if I have a backup plan that I could do, maybe the thing that team wants to do that could also do the backup plan, maybe I should sequence that later so that okay. if I do miss out on what I really want to do, I've still got the backup plan. Whereas if you, if you do that first, you know, so th there comes, there's a nice little layering there of when, where you decide to sequence things based on what everybody else wants, but also what your own backup plans are. Yeah. So this game we played the other night and even when we played it three or so years ago and with the slight changes that's happened since then, we, we very much um, enjoyed it, especially that reveal and the yelling at each other, which is us in a nutshell, but <laughs> yeah. we would be amiss if we didn't mention probably I don't want to say necessarily the strongest aspect of this game, but it's definitely something that I think sticks out, and that is the the art of it and the table presence of this game. The board itself is so colourful and so nice, but so practical. As I mentioned before, it's the thing that good games I've noticed do well is that there's no wasted space on this. The board has lots of different areas, but everything goes exactly where it's supposed to be. And from looking at this, if you were to walk past this at a convention and see how colourful it is, and those four big player screens and all the different cards that have individual pieces of artwork on them. It must have been a real labor of love to get all the artists and get everyone together to get all of this into one spot. Yeah, look, it was, but all, uh, it comes from Chris's brain, right? Chris, Chris yeah. had a vision for a big, you know, pan continental vision of a, of a sort of a low fantasy game setting, something like in a game of Thrones type of world where you've got a bunch of different, people with all sorts of different cultural influences and that kind of stuff. And so that gave us great scope to be really inclusive and diverse in, in the art of the game. So we've got lots of female characters, you know, there's various people from all sorts of cultures from around the world into the game. We had people in the Kickstarter contact us quietly say, I want to thank you for putting non-cliched representations of people from my background yep. in your game. And honestly, that was just such a golden moment when that happened because that's, we're not going to do a song and dance about it, but that's a thing that we want to do. It's in Unfair, it's in Guildmaster, even fairy season, there's female goblins and the fairies are kind of diverse and that kind of stuff. You know, we'll, obviously the butterflies just look like butterflies but <laughs> in, in Fluttering Souls, but wherever possible, wherever we can make a world that lets people sit down at the table and feel welcome in that world, we're going to do that. Absolutely. And it's not hard to do and it's like a no-brainer to do as well. So I'm, I'm glad you love that. But yeah, we, we ended up working with three artists, um, probably the most well-known of which is uh, Andy Bosley, who's yeah. done um, Everdell and many other really, really cool games. Well, also Tapestry. I mean, you know, he's, Tapestry he's, he's done, well, a, yeah. done a pretty couple of, couple of pretty big games lately. So right. um, yeah, having his name attached to that is, is wonderful for, for those art lovers as well, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. Um, you know, it was it was difficult because I think he likes does everything, um, but he was free and we asked him because he had the right style. Uh, he was really, really good to work with. So with the other guys. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was really cool. Um, and Chris did a lot of the art direction in terms of coming up with the original character concepts. And I did just helped carry it through and make sure the artists followed through with that. But it is an interesting process going through the art direction and management of uh, 80 plus art assets in a game um, because you have to produce a cohesive picture. And that comes with the need to do a really, really detailed world level art brief, lots of background stuff. A lot of work goes into pulling those kind of strings together. It just doesn't come out of people just going, oh, that looks good. <laughs> yeah. How did you find and, and reconcile the fact that you know, the, the board itself looks beautiful, but you, you are covering up 
you know, almost the majority of it with with cards, which admittedly are beautiful as well. But yeah. you've got this wonderful tavern scene and what have you, and uh, spends most of the game being covered. It's a good question because we did actually specifically think about that. And the whole idea is that, you know, and, and even you'll remember when you open the box, right? You pull up, the first thing you'll see in the box is the big welcoming guy doing the quick start guide. And he's got mm -hmm. open arms. He's, he's basically there saying, oh, welcome to your master. Yeah. And then you go in and you look at the rule book and they're a bit more serious there. Like, oh, okay, we're going to get serious now. And when you pull everything out of the box, you're pulling it out of a tavern where all the all the adventures are hanging That's out. Good. Now, that tavern is the board. When you put that board on the table, it's saying, welcome. You're going to be talking about the stories that you're doing in the game. The adventurers may work for different guilds, but they'll probably drink at the same tavern every <laughs> night, right? Well, Sharing sure, sure more stories. Exactly. So, you know, there's a big part of it about that. And, you know, it just made sense that you get to see the full thing when you're setting it up and you get to go, as you guys have just done, oh, wow, that's just really immersive and beautiful and that kind of stuff. And there's lots of little Easter eggs in that big, beautiful border. <laughs> but inevitably, the, the cards have to go somewhere. And, you know, we just arrange it in the six spots the adventurers are going and the other six spots for the contracts. And, and, and once you've had that first ball into the immersion of the game, the game is then about the characters and the contracts, and that's what's telling you the story of the game. So I think the ideal is that people then, okay, well, I got to see the art, but I'm no longer thinking about the art anymore because I now want to see the art on that character or that character or that one. Which one do I want more? Oh, damn it, I didn't get this one. Or I did get this one. Look at that. Whoa. And you're yeah. creating your own story by the people you've hired and the contracts you've chosen to, to go and complete. And yeah. we had a great time reading out in you know all kinds of really bad voices that we put to our, <laughs> our contracts and our characters to, to give it that little bit of extra thematic oomph. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We, we all had a great time laughing around our various contracts. Yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, and now we, something that we need to talk about is that, um, as we said, we played this about three years ago, I think it was, um, at, at, at PAX, and we, we quite enjoyed it then. And we were looking forward to it all coming out and whatever else, but that took a wee bit longer than we were expecting. <laughs> What, what did you do, Kim? I mean, I obviously, as you've just kind of answered the question anyway, clearly you guys put so much effort into this and it was such a, you know, put so much love into it to get, you wanted to get the perfect product and get it out there, which we very much appreciate. But on the other coin, it's all your fault, isn't it, Kim? So please explain yourself. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> games are big. Um, yeah. Look, probably the, the first is of a bunch of layered issues, as you might imagine. First yes. one is that somehow we thought it'd be, to run a unfair expansion Kickstarter campaign and Guildmaster within a few months of each other. And <laughs> that was not a good idea. Um, both games are big. They both need a lot of attention and they both got a little bit delayed because of their proximity to the other one. You know, in hindsight, we won't do that again. So, and that's again part of why we're deciding now about which games go to Kickstarter and which don't because we want to be able to produce four games a year. But if you're going to limit yourself to starting a Kickstarter and finishing that Kickstarter, that's simply not possible because of the yeah. length of time. Production, mm -hmm. shipping, fulfillment takes, is you get two in at the, at the very best that anyone could do. So not really possible. So lesson number one, don't run two big Kickstarters right close to each other. Lesson number two, we thought Guildmaster was ready. Obviously, and this is a dichotomy in Kickstarter, you want to stretch a game, are those stretch goals fake or are they real? <laughs> like, Do you need have, them to play the game properly? Well, well, do you already have the art? Have you planned all the character abilities? So I think we unlocked, I think it was 16 new characters yep. that we'd been testing 
abilities thinking well maybe we'll get to them and stretch goals maybe we won't how much do we test them what if they're not in the game what does that what balance does that change that comes at a time cost um even that just getting the art done for the screens now we went into kickstarter with one singular design on the screens and we were just going to color them differently like that a different paint job yep. well, it looks great but wouldn't it be awesome if we could get kickstarter <laughs> to help us make four unique screens at great cost to us but Andy then had to go and paint those screens and do them. And we had to, you know, do all the iterations. So all of the stretch goals, because we unlocked a bunch, come at a time cost. And I think the second lesson is assume your best case scenario in stretch goals is your worst case scenario in fulfillment. So we'll have to add on to stretch goals and assume that we will basically tap out our stretch goals. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll, we'll do that next time as well. And then look, a little bit of real life happened. There was you know, losses amongst the team and in family members and stuff like that. So that knocked the team's ability to be productive around a little bit for a while. Don't want to make excuses for that, but just life happens, yep. shit happens. So yep. um, that's yeah, that, that's real. And then COVID happened as well. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there's just a bunch of things stacking up now. All there was progress all the time and some backers are understandably frustrated, but I think what people have to remember is that probably the majority of I backed the game, I committed to it then, I sunk the money in, I know it'll arrive at some time, or I'm 95% sure that it'll arrive. And the most people care about whether it's going to be good or not, not precisely yeah. Yeah. when it gets there. But those people are going to be pretty quiet. The people that are not like that, that do care about the time, are going to be very vocal about very. that. And so you get Kickstarter comments starting looking like everybody thinks like that. Because the people that don't care don't literally care. They're like, it'll get there and I'm not going to hang out on the comments page mm. every week leaving a comment. So, look, we, we put out updates. Um, sometimes we'd slip a month and there wouldn't be an update for a month or two. Um, but to, in the last seven or eight months, we've put out an update every month and I've got one drafted tonight that'll go out to everybody tonight to let them know where all the rest of the full filming is. So yeah. the other thing is communications. You know, some people want to know every aspect of the campaign, but we think that the majority of people want to know facts that matter, not an empty update that says, sorry, we're late and they have nothing to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and I think you're right. I think, I think I'm sure we've talked about this before, but you know, Kickstarter has now been around since I think 2009. So that we've, we've, we've almost all bought Kickstarter product now, especially in the board gaming world. And we've all experienced delays. And as long as we have faith in the product, then I think most people are going to be forgiving as long as there is signs of, of updates and improvements and getting closer and closer to a, That's right. a fulfillment yeah. date. So, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, Starling Games or, or what have you, Game Salute had their issues and they were they were quite unfortunately well known for, for having delays and obviously they've, they've you know, gone a long way to solving that problem now, which is good. But I'm still waiting for some spoons from 2015 or 2016. <laughs> oh, that's right. Those bloody spoons. I there, is a, there is a board game that I can't even remember the name of that is at least two and a half to three years old uh, and delayed. And it's just like, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> if, if the 50 or 100 bucks I spent or, or four, year, four year ago Garth spent, you know, it'll be nice when it gets here. I was hoping it would be a Splendor Killer because it looked really cool. Yeah. But we'll, we'll see when we actually get and, that. And that's the thing. In the end, the, the enduring memory of a game is the game itself. Correct. And and so, you know, we had a few people accusing us of ridiculous things like going to the Bahamas and kicking it up. And well, they're only joking and they're being facetious and that kind of stuff. But all that's 
working on the game and I basically have to wear it. And every time we do an update, I show the pictures of what we actually are doing. Yep. And yeah. somehow, somehow that's enough for most people, but not enough for everybody. That's okay. In the end, I knew we'd deliver the games and we're delivering them now. So the, the early feedback is fantastic. People are very happy with the quality um the component quality and art and all that yeah. kind of stuff and again and at the end of the day the people in those vocal kind of minorities that which shows what they know because you guys are australian you wouldn't be going to the bahamas you'd be going to like thailand or fiji or something that's we, right we we, we know where we're going and so definitely, and it's not that expensive fiji. to go there so that's no excuse either but, um, <laughs> but yeah no no that's excellent to hear the clarification on that and it's one of those things that like it never bothered me i knew what you guys were going through and the update just from the updates it wasn't from talking to you guys personally yeah. even though i had talked to, to alan and a few other people so i knew a little bit more than most but that's all it takes is a little bit of communication and as you said you're going to get some people that are negative no matter what you do but i knew that mainly because i played it so i knew i was going to get a good game turning up part of the pun at some point yeah so it didn't really matter and as you said as long as it comes here and it's got you know and it's going to be quality it's you know you can't really complain as far as i'm concerned well look there were a couple of other things like the we'd never promised the quick start guide but we just thought in the end yeah it was a good idea to do that and that required a little bit of juggling about the rules and and just rethinking about how we're going to get into it because it's quite a difficult game to explain in words on the on a page and yeah. we had to do a lot of words you know a lot of a lot of juggling of words to try and make sure that happened smoothly which it sounds like from your experience yeah. it has so yeah. it worked out completely fine with us so before we jump to another quick break and then afterwards we're going to finish up with kim and find out what is coming next which is the big exciting thing uh garth how did you find guild masters all these three years after playing it from the original uh look i found it really good i enjoyed without any shadow of a doubt this the programming of my orders and yeah. the big reveal where almost every single round, Leon and I were fighting over virtually the, exactly the same things, even though there yeah. were two other players in this particular game. Yeah. Leon and I jockeyed for first and second, and he was taking fame away from me, and I was stealing money from him for the whole game. And look, as I, as I said to you, Kim, on a, a little bit of a chat earlier on, I was really impressed that we had four different strategies around the table. So Leon went super hard for all the upgrades super early. I very was very light on upgrades until the very, very end, yet our scores ended up being within two points of each other. And, you know, we fought over a lot of contracts. We fought over a lot of building position and what have you. But I was, I was really impressed that the other two players who came in third and fourth respectively were still only within about 10 points of us. So I think the score range was, was about 86 to 96 in, in total. Yeah. I I enjoyed that, but nothing is as exciting as the big reveal, followed very closely by the handfuls of dice that you are uh, rolling. And my only wish is that there was dice for each of the colours of the, the various traits. All the dice were big, chunky quantum dice or something like that. Just they would be so enormous when you're rolling your 10 of those. But that's I, I really had a great time with this game, Kim. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, look, the, the dice was one thing we... We have to, like I said before, we try to be retail savvy. So we have to try and keep the price down so it's um, at a price that will sell. Like, I don't know, if you if you go around and have a look at a lot of the online game stores that have games deeply discounted because they haven't sold, find a very large proportion of them are Kickstarter games that are priced out of feasibility um, <laughs> yes. because of, of what they have in them. That that We don't want that to be our games. We want our games to be potential evergreens, every, every one of them. So we have to make some decisions like that. And we did offer in the campaign the chance for people to buy 
an extra set of dice um, so that everyone could have their own color, but also you can get the same sort of dice that we've got in the game from Chessex or... or The nature of having standard D6s in your game means that you can can do your individual blinging out. So that, I mean, that would be my only criticism because I wasn't a backer of this game is is having an extra set of dice. So at least there was a a full set of 10 per player. The other other clear, um, you know, disappointment is that there was no dice men hidden in there as any characters because, you know, you had 80 (laughs) art assets and, you know, I I didn't see a Tasmanian warrior in any of them. So... What's his name? (laughs) Representation? Bollocks, I say. Bollocks. Bollocks. There was no double-headed, no double-headed dice men at all. But, any, but anyway, not saying that there's room for expansions, but there's room for expansions. So either way, so that um, that is Guildmasters is a game that we um, we very much recommend people try and get their hands on and play. And luckily, it is now being shipped to a lot of people throughout the world, which is good to see. So we will be back just after this with whatever I chuck in here right now. Uh, Remember that we are brought to you again by our good friends at Looking for Gamers, so lfg-aus.com. Get on there, buy all the things, especially the good games. Hello, everybody. It's your friendly neighbourhood, Leon, here. Just a quick break in the action to remind everybody how you can interact with the Dice Men. Of course, we are on all those social medias so things like your instagrams your facebook your twitters we're on all of them at dice men cometh you can also email us at the dice men cometh at gmail.com that's a great way to get in touch with us for things like asking any type of questions but also sponsorship we've been doing that for several years now with various different promotions and ads and you can be involved in that too if you like also if you wish to help the dice man cometh you can get onto itunes and chuck us one of those cheeky five star reviews it helps people from around the world get to listen and we've met some great international listeners because of that so the more you can do that the merrier And if you would like, we also have our Patreon. You can go over there and chuck us a few bucks, completely up to you. Even if you threw us a dollar a month, you would not notice out of your bank account, but we certainly would. If everybody listening to my voice did that, we would be happy as Larry. And we use that money to good effect. We use it to get to various different conventions all around Australia. It ain't easy getting around this big old country that we have, but we manage and we do it because we want to meet you and play as many games as possible. Or you could jump over to redbubble.com chuck in the dice men cometh and have any of our merch with our logo on it we've got t-shirts we've got hoodies there are mugs there are heaps of cool stuff over there i've got quite a bit of it and it all looks grand so with all that being said thank you very much for listening and supporting us over the years we absolutely love doing this show and hopefully we'll be doing it for a long time to come and your support is one of the main drivers of that so feel free to get in touch about anything to do with board gaming or anything whatsoever but enough of my chit chat back to the action you are back with the dice men cometh episode 313 and we are here with our good friend kim from good games and during the break Kim was telling us about the retail version of Guildmaster. So not just you lucky people that back the Kickstarter, the retail version is not far away, is it, Kim? No, it's coming on September 16th in Australia and more like September 30 around the rest of the world. So, yeah, it's it's pretty much the same game. The Kickstarter backers were able to get some extra dice in with it. But, uh, yeah, retail purchase to be able to buy those dice Yep. you know in any other way as well so that's and, coming up soon we're pretty excited about that and the way we're releasing these podcasters at the moment uh fortnightly that will probably be about a week after this comes out so if awesome. people like what they heard get on those websites and get onto those you know friendly local game stores and get your hands on one yeah, now garthy boy the Hello. future 
We the wanted future. to ask about the future oh, and how it looks bright for, well, at least the board gaming world, not necessarily the, the world world, but let's forget about that for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let, yeah, what else, what is the future holding for good games? Because um, I seem to recall on previous conversations we've had that, you know, you've, you've got a bit of a timeline planned out for good games publishing because you, you want to release a certain number of games per year. There's only so many games you can work on at any, any given time. So, so what is life mainly about for you and what games have you got coming up soon, Kim? Well, this year it's been uh, the Unfair Expansion earlier in the year, then Fluttering Souls and Fairy Season, middle of the year in global retail, then Guildmaster now. And the next thing we're releasing is a shorter, faster, friendlier version of Unfair called Fuck Fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we've just finished playtesting. I think I mentioned that before in the tabletop simulator chat we're having. And um, really, really excited about that one. It's um, punchier. It's not going to break anybody's nose like, you know, sometimes unfair can. But it, it's because it is shorter and faster and, and tighter, you also don't get the huge combinational exploration that you get in unfair. So they're, they're quite, they're built from the same game engine. Their DNA is the same, but quite different experiences. One's a lot lighter, farther and faster and tighter and, and unfair is bigger and you can explore it endlessly forever. So we are building a line of that and hopefully we'll get a lot of people coming in through Funfair to then go on and go, well, I want more and then unfair will be there for them. Yeah. Or if somebody had a, um, some somebody finding it hard to get unfair to the table, then they can get Funfair and try that out. Cool. And is that going to be a Kickstarter or straight to retail release? That's going to be straight to retail Ooh. because... You know, we're reusing some of the cards and art assets from Unfair in the game because we want it to help drive people between the two so that yep. there's a certain amount of core familiarity there. So we didn't need quite as much of the money. Like Unfair has, as you can imagine, with all the art in Unfair and Guildmaster, ridiculously large art budgets, and that's what Kickstarter's great at covering. So it's not so dramatic. There's definitely about a, uh, I think it's about 40% of new art in the game. Okay. It's, it's not nearly, it's not quite as big a game and there's only that certain amount of new art. So we're trying this one straight to retail. And we also think because we, we wanted to make the perfectly tight game. And so we didn't want lots of stretch goals in that what we have done. Like we're, we're making the perfect game priced at sort of 40 US dollars, maybe 50, 55 Australian dollars. So yeah. that'll be out by Christmas. Fantastic. Yeah, well, I, I did play a, a version of that with Joel and Diceman Mark a couple of years ago at PAX again, I'm sure. Yep. Yeah, we were sitting at the table and again, Joel was there just playing funfair, 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 and unfair, unfair, unfair. He, he just doesn't stop. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that, um, how that happens before Christmas because obviously that kind of commitment in this kind of year is pretty impressive. Well, yeah. I mean, look, an, another factor in our thinking at the moment is that it's hard to get to play with with the hardcore gamers that are at the local game club or perhaps the, the regular games group you might have once a week. So we're trying to bring out games that you can play inside the family or maybe good couples games. Um, luckily, Funfair is ready and waiting there. We've got another couple in the works as well. Um, that we think will be really good in that regard. So we think Funfair will will go very, very, very well as a sort of a couples and family friendly kind of game for people yeah. who are finding that they're playing more games in the family. Um, and it'll be 14 box, but I think you'd be fine with uh, 10 year olds plus playing that Excellent. one. Excellent. Good to yeah. hear. Well, hopefully we can get our hands on a copy, hey Kim? Yes, I think you will be able to get your hands on a copy <laughs> as soon as ah. I get some. Don't be so flippant. There's two of us. Multiple copies would be lovely. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and what about what about 2021 and beyond? Any anything you can share with us at the moment? 
Yeah, uh, so we've got uh, a fantastic game called Drift, which is a, a, a beautiful simulation of, a, of drift racing. Now, drift racing is not a thing that I've ever really thought about, but as soon as I played this game, I'm like, what the hell? It's just like <laughs> such a good simulation of a racing game. I do enjoy a racing game like Flamme Rouge. Is, I rate oh, that very, very high. Yes, um, yes. as we all do. But I, I think Drift brings something that, most other games don't attempt in that it does feel like you're driving it uses these kind of like wings of war trajectiles they're called and the longer the tile is so if you're in fifth gear you place a really long tile um but it goes almost straight there's only a few degrees turn but if you're in second gear it doesn't travel very far but it turns quite widely so to handle better and turn corners better you have to use the lower gears you're slowing down so people game race towards a corner going it's a racing game go fast and then they put the five gear tile down heading into a corner <laughs> and then they see what that looks like in their next and they go i i can't do that no i need to be in fourth gear and they change down and um it's a beautiful looking game we think it will do really well racing game enthusiasts are kind of going literally ballistic about it like they love it so we're mm. very optimistic about that that will go to kickstarter we're not okay. we don't have an exact date yet but um we hope to bring the game up in some special ways. On oh, look, I think, one. you know, talking about Joel and his passion for, for Unfair and Funfair, James and his passion for his game, that that guy is a credit to board gaming. He will not ever stop anyone from playing his game. He is so passionate about it. it and is. I played it. Um, very, very lucky enough to beat him just over the finish line in a, a little shortened version. We played at a BorderCon a few years ago, but I'm really excited for this because it's it's been a, a while in the making, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And look, a lot of it's been like, because we think it has the potential to be, you know, one of the three racing games. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Yep. Obviously, a lot of things have to line up and, and for that to work out. We think it's got a chance of being like that. So it's been a matter of like the first time I played it was it was six players. And okay. it's just it's down to four players now because that's a tighter, faster, better, more racy experience and better all around for everybody. Then there's how many track pieces are there? What are the cars going to look like? How exactly we're we doing these tiles? What are all the rules? Are they thematically logical in every way? Because it's a simulation. We can't be doing things in the game that don't make sense. Yep. It all makes sense because it feels so real. So it's been a lot of hunting in that. But um, if anybody's interested in playing that, we have a fantastic mod on Tabletop Simulator. And when James told me he was doing Drift on Tabletop Simulator, I laughed in his face and said, that's not possible. <laughs> I've never been so wrong. It's, it's, it's fantastic. So, um, yeah, hopefully... I, I, might, I might have to hit you up for a game of that with James online because it's been a couple it. of years since I've played it. So I do feel like scratching that itch because... I have Flom Rouge up there and I love it. I played Thunder Alley by GMT Games years and years ago and that was a bit more heavy-duty simulator. Obviously, there's Formula D and there's all these different versions. But, yeah, I, I like your positivity around it being one of the big ones. It is it is just so fun. And, and ultimately, that's what you want in a, a race game. You want it to be fun. You want to see the consequences of your actions, both good and bad. And oh, I, I think I'll have to make that happen. Okay. Well, you're invited and hopefully we can... The, the address of that mod and the show links and that sort of stuff. Yeah, brilliant. All right. So sounds like, again, you've got a lot of stuff coming up and there's no doubt plenty of things that you can't talk about. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one thing about um, any one of your games that Good Games Publishing has released. What is the go-to strategy for one of the games to ensure you are going to win? 
You need that much of a leg up, Garth? What's I going don't. on I'm, there? I'm doing it for the listeners. <laughs> I mean, I think I know the answer. It's play monstrous so much that you have to use your wrong hand when playing it against people. <laughs> That's so, right. So, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat is the answer to that. One, one thing I hope you could take into every one of our games, there's, there's probably always something beyond what you think there is. So we like games that have surprise and depth. It's one of our sort of selection criteria. We like games that you can play it once or twice and you think you've got a clear read on the game. And then you go, oh, I lost that game and I'm not sure why. And you start asking questions about why you lost. And then you think of the reasons or the things or the strategies you can do different next time. So if it gets you asking that question, how could I do better next time? That's, I think if you can take that thinking into every game, you'll find the answers in the next time you play. So. Uh, I'm not going to give you any specific thing about any one game other than to say there's always going to be more. And if you think you've got the game worked out, we hope you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And just lastly, before you go, who do you think we should get on the show to do something similar to what you've done? Uh, Look, I could ask someone like James Hudson. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah cool. From, He's always happy to have a chat, isn't he? Yeah, Druid City Games, Skybound. I mean, if you if you want somebody international, those yeah. guys are doing some fantastic things. And you could also also try Vince from Lucky Duck. I could put you okay. in, in touch with those guys. I mean, you have to sort out time zones and stuff, but... That's all right. Leon's a shift worker, so time is all over the place for him anyway. Yeah, I'm uh, not even awake at the moment, but I'm still maintaining my professionalism somewhat by not speaking for majority of this. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I like that. I think James Hudson would be a very good choice for, for this show. I reckon he'll be a lot of fun. All right. I'll sort Excellent. that out. Well, look, Kim, thank you so much for, for spending your Monday night with a, a couple of dice men from Tasmania. Thanks for filling us in on, on a bit of your gaming history and obviously all things good game publishing. Now, if listeners are interested, where do they find more info about you or good games or the games that you produce? Uh, just find us on our website, goodgamespublishing.com. No AU there, just .com. Uh, and then you'll get links to all our socials and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on this episode. Episode 313 of The Dice Men Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Games. So, Leon, have you got anything else that you would like to talk about before we wrap this one up and put a little bow around it? No, I'm just going to do exactly what I've done for 312 odd episodes, even though I wasn't here for the first hundred. And that is uh, wish my best to everybody out there to play more games, stay safe and be happy because we love you all. Because I'm just that kind of nice kind of guy, Garth. I might look like a thug, but I'm quite the the delight. You should know that. That's why we do an audio-only podcast, Leon. Exactly. (laughs) Excellent. Well, look, thanks so much, Kim. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing what what Good Games has got for our gaming futures. So we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks very much for having me, guys. And I really appreciate it and love the show. Keep it up. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, all. You've been listening to another episode of The Dice Men Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Australia. Be sure to check out lfg-oz.com.au for all the details of their flagship events, LFG Sydney and LFG Essen Unplugged, as well as their online and physical retail store. You can find us at dicemencometh.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget, you can support us on Patreon too. Thanks for listening.